So I was at a membership interview just before this, and God has brought into our assembly a, a man by the name of Jordan. And he's an officer out on Fort Bragg. His name is Jordan Thomas. And man, does he have one of those incredible salvation testimonies. I mean, one of those testimonies that only God can do something like this, you know? I mean, not to grow up in church and the, the utter God-hater, God, just everything. And God opened his eyes to the glorious gospel about two years ago. And, um, and he is just on fire for the Lord. He came last Wednesday night for the first time and then Sunday morning for all services and first class, and then had his membership interview tonight. Um, and uh, But he knows the church from Tim Rafferty and um, John Mannion and, 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 and already, so he's very familiar and because everything's online. It was easy for him to figure out who we are as a church, but hopefully some of you men will uh, connect with him and hear his salvation testimony. You can't help but get like just encouraged, just thoroughly encouraged that God's still in the business of saving people. Really exciting. All right, we're in Isaiah 28, right? Yeah. Verse 16. Yep. Almost halfway there. Yeah, 33 is halfway. Yeah. Yep. Not that we're counting. All right. So did we make it through? Let's start with 14, just to kind of give us some back job, drop. Justin, would you read, please? Yeah, absolutely. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and the righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming storm passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perazim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused. To his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien in is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Keep going you did the chapter? No, I stopped pointing. Gotcha. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? 
When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in the wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and immer as a border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick, and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Okay, somebody say something while I'm working on this. Get the conversation started. We heard a sermon one time um, from a pastor who was at a passion conference, and he was illustrating uh, part of Isaiah. And it was uh, when the Assyrians came down to Jerusalem. We're getting there. Um, but he was, you know, his, the way he articulated it was that they were talking smack to Jerusalem, the Assyrians were, and he was like, oh, you do not talk smack to God. And it just seems to be like a recurring theme in Isaiah is, you know, you just don't talk smack to God because God will talk back through his prophet Isaiah. Verse 22, it makes it sound like you take your punishment, but if you make fun of me, I'm good. You make it worse. I think last week I ended with I wanted to show you kind of a way that we can use blue in our Bible in a kind of a cool way um, that's why I was scrambling to get it up because I remembered that if you if you recall when we ended last week we were focused on verse 16 mm-hmm. and why were we focused on verse 16 and what was the point of our Focus on verse 16. Stone, cheap one stone. Right, exactly. But when we look at the end of 16, it looks a little bit kind of different to us. The one who believes will be unshakable. Um, what other? What were the other translations on that besides unshakable? Not being haste. Not being haste. What did you have, um, Evan, on the NIV? I assume you have your NIV with you tonight. Um yeah, it is. Let me be stricken with panic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, stricken with panic. What do you got, Quinn? Oh, I said maybe somebody will get Evan a new Bible for his wedding. I already tried it. <laughs> I already tried it. Yeah, it's one of the very first things I've worked on. And he calls me a mentor, but I've been an utter failure in this aspect of moving him to a better translation. Yeah. Yeah. But you started that, not it's me, like right? <laughs> yeah. What'd you say? At least it's not falling apart now. Yes. So here we are, and on the screen is Romans 9, 33. And it's interesting to note, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's some parallels right there, but that last part is pretty different. Do you all agree? Yes. Right. So, uh, perhaps you've used um, the Literary Bible, but I touched the verse number just now, and I go to interlinear. Why, why do I want to go to interlinear? interlinear? Yep, I'm looking up words, and I want to see what it is. I think Michael, was that you that said the Greek? 
Right, so then I scroll down here and I find my word shame. So I'm just scrolling down to the bottom because there's notes at the end. All right, we'll be disappointed. So that's another translation. Let's see, this is the King James, right? So now here's my Greek word here. So I'm going to touch on the actual number. The hyperlink there will be the number. And this allows me now to look at the Greek word, okay? Gives me some ideas here on what this Greek word is and how many times it's used. All right, everyone follow me so far? This is what we want to look at. Click here to view results using LXX Greek concordance. Where are you? Sorry. Sorry, right? You're not using a mouse, so you can't. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And my putting my finger down doesn't do any (laughs) good either. (laughs) Since. I see it now. Yeah. All right, so this is kind of important. What's my LXX? What's my Septuagint? Of the Old Testament. So now what I want to know is I want to know, is this Greek word used in the Septuagint? In the Old Testament? Because I know that if I go Hebrew to Greek, that makes it impossible to establish a parallel, right? Does everyone follow what I mean? You know, that's like Spanish to English. Well, that doesn't mean that there's a parallel. I want to get in the same language group. It's easy to study all the Greek references in the New Testament. That's fine. I can stay within there. But what if I want to know, is there a parallel in the Old Testament? So I touch on here, that hyperlink, and then I can just scroll through here. And what am I looking for? I'm looking for my Isaiah passage, everyone. So I scroll Psalm, 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 and there I get into Isaiah, and there I am. Isaiah 28, 16. The passage that we just read. And here I am with this exact passage. See the unshakable right there? On Isaiah 28, 16. I'm right there in the middle. Isaiah 28, 16. The Lord God said, Look, I've laid in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. One who believes will be unshakable. And then I've got a little footnote here. Will not hurry. So probably, in all likelihood, Paul was not quoting from the Hebrews. Paul was quoting from the Septuagint. Why am I saying that? Septuagint got old. What's that? 238 BC. Just said it, yeah. 200 years before Christ. So it's after Malachi, before Jesus. Yes. So now, why do we have? Let's stop for a moment. Why do we have a Septuagint? Why, why was there a Septuagint? Because the Greeks took over that area. Um, yeah, you got all these Jews right. who are born in these cities, and what's their language? Greek. Greek. And you're trying to talk to them about this Hebrew Bible, and so how in the world are they going to read a Hebrew Bible? They haven't spoken Hebrew any time in their lives. They're integrated into the Greek culture. So what do the Jews do? Remember, this is not a Christian project. This is not a Christian project. This is a Orthodox Jewish project. There are no Christians when this is created. Everyone getting that, right? Right. There are no Christians at this point. Right. This is an Orthodox Jewish... The same reason we translate the Bible into other languages is exactly why they're busy doing the same exact thing. Is everyone tracking on what what I'm saying here? They want to get their Jewish, um, Greek Jews reading their Tanakh. T-N-A-H-K. 
the three, the, 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 the writings, the prophets, and the Torah. I said it backwards, I should have started with Torah, but that's the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Right? And so how are we going to get these Jew-speaking Jews, I'm uh, Greek-speaking Jews, we, are, we either got to teach them Hebrew, or we got to give them the Torah in their own language. So we're going to translate it, we start publishing the Septuagint. What's interesting about that is uh, there was a group of, of like 70 Jews that went to Alexandria, and they came together to basically copy into Greek the Pentateuch. It was initially only the Pentateuch. And so that's why it's called the Septuagint, because there were 70 uh, people there. Yeah, and they were very convinced as a group that the, that Yahweh was guiding them, that they got it right, that they did a good job, that this was an excellent translation. So I'm, I'm showing you how we have, here Paul is saying, will not be put to shame, and we've got this Hebrew word, which means, what, what were our translations? Not in haste. Not in haste. Not disturbed. Not disturbed. Right. And and so we're wondering, you're comparing, you're in Romans 9, and you're wondering, well, how in the world did they end up with shame when every translation in Hebrew doesn't make sense? Now you go and you look, oh, it is that very word. It's the exact same thing, giving us a lot of confidence that Paul was not quoting from the Hebrew, but from the Septuagint. Now, why would... Paul quote from the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew. Probably the most readily available copies, right? And he was speaking to the Greek people. Exactly. People that were. That's right. He's writing in Greek. The people that are are reading it speak Greek, so he's assuming that that's going to be their primary translation. What What's also interesting about that is that throughout Scripture there are certain points where even like Matthew quotes. The Greek, whenever he's quoting the Old Testament, he quotes the Greek Septuagint as opposed to the Hebrew. Yeah. And the same with Jesus as well. In sure. Multiple times. Because the language differs between the Greek and the Hebrew at points. Yes. Go ahead, Ron. Was, uh, was Paul a, a Hellenist? Uh, uh, like in Acts? Uh, is the, you have the Hebrew. Paul is both. He's both. He's both. Remember, Paul brags about the fact that he grew up under the tutelage of the best Hebrew scholars. So he's completely bilingual. He's probably more than bilingual. He's probably three or four languages at a minimum, the degree that he's a traveler. Um, but when he talks about his credentials being of the tribe of Benjamin, and then he drops names as to who, you know, I, I studied under John MacArthur and John Piper. And I mean, he's just going through the, I mean, that's what he's doing there in that text. It's not much different when you see, you'll hear associate justices and they'll talk about who they clerked for, yeah. who they clerked for. And they start dropping names of the Supreme Court justices that they work for. That's how they get credibility. You know, when you when you clerk for the seniors in the Supreme Court, what's his name? Uh, Roberts, right? John Roberts. John Roberts. When you're his clerk, I mean, that's as high as it gets until you get to be a justice yourself. Well, that's what Paul's doing. He's dropping these names as to who taught him concerning the law. So there's no question that Paul knows Hebrew and Greek um, at the same time. <clears throat> so um, this allows us to do some cross-referencing from Old Testament to New Testament. So 
Therefore, Yahweh, or Adonai, in verse 16, Adonai God, or Adonai Elohim, said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame is how Paul quotes it in Romans 9, 33. And then he quotes it again in Romans 10. Let's see, Romans, and I can't even find Romans, Romans 10 and 10, uh, 11. Here it is right here. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. So how should we understand that not be put to shame idea? How should we, what, what's he talking about that not put to shame idea? When, when would that be a concern and why is this such an amazing promise? I would think it goes straight to judgment. Yeah, sure. Unpack that some more. Uh, so, obviously, I'm not. There'd be two, two judgments um, for what we know, and that those who believe in Him are safe from that. So you're at the judgment. You're at the judgment. You're you're there. And what are you wondering? <laughs> what are you wondering? <laughs> yeah. What else are you wondering? Is this going to be embarrassing? Is this going to be a shaming session? You know, am I going to want to leave with my tail between my legs? Yeah, exactly. Is this this going to be embarrassing? Am I going to be put to shame? Everyone gets what a shaming is, right? It's embarrassing. It's the worst that you can imagine to be shamed in front of your peers. Anybody ever been shamed in front of their peers before? I have in the army. Oh yeah. It's the worst. It's one thing to be taken in private and scolded. It's entirely another thing to be with your peer group and to be embarrassed. Go ahead, Sean. I thought about uh, Revelation 20, verse 12. Uh, I was trying to find out where it was because it says that, um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in there. It says, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. And um, I think about like that's like everything. Remember when you did this? Yep. Remember when you did that? And I mean, that's a shame for sure, you know? Right. So what what kind of promise is this? I mean, how good of a promise is this? Oh, yeah. What? Salvific in nature. Yeah. Yeah. And it's more than just salvific, right? It's, it's when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, if your life has been committed to faith in Christ... You have no concern with being embarrassed. You have no concern with being put to shame. This is this is really good news. It's really important to think about just the difference between the culture of what shame, fear and shame meant to the culture that they were growing up in. Because fear and shame is not the way we like approach scripture. We approach through guilt and sin. But in the East, if you talk to Orthodox Christians, where you talk to Jews, where you talk to Muslims, fear and shame is the gateway to get to get them to see the gospel. It's not a, like uh, the way we approach it of like this is the law. This is it, it's it's a different dichotomy in a different way. That is it. Thank you, Quinn. Because yeah. you think about all the ways that we were taught to evangelize. All of us that are older in this room, when you die, you don't want to go to hell, mm-hmm. or when you die, you definitely want to go to heaven. There's no time in all my evangelism that I ever said to somebody, hey, when you're at the judgment seat of Christ, you don't want to be put to shame. 
Nope. Never said that. Never even crossed my mind. Because nope. I don't think it would connect to anybody as a serious issue. But you're saying that that would have been their first concern. Not being shamed, not being embarrassed, not having fear right there. Because look how Paul uses this parallelism. I'm in that Romans 10. It's on the screen. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are those two different messages? No. It's the same message, right? Just said what? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, very similar wording in um, Daniel 12, 2, regarding judgment. Multitudes receive the dust of the earth will wait some to everlasting life, others to shame, everlasting content. Yeah, right. That's Daniel 12, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly the same idea. Right. Same, same idea with Christ and Jesus. <coughs> recognize him before the Father. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you remember where that's at? I don't Try to say if I forgot what I was saying. What was the words? If you are ashamed of me in front of men, I'll be ashamed of you in front of my father. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. The other passage that uses this same Greek word as a parallel is 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2, and it's verse 16. So now we go to a completely different... I thought it was. I guess I made a mistake. Six. Yeah, six. Six, yes. I have 16, so yeah, there's my mistake. For for it stands in Scripture, see, I lay in Zion a stone in... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. All right. Now, now last week, I kind of made a... I was using this verse as an illustration of what we've been calling in church New Covenant Theology. And what, what what we've been kind of discussing as a congregation a little bit, so I'm back on the screen with you guys on verse 16. So here you are, you're studying this text. You're a teacher. You're a Sunday school teacher. You're a, a, a small group leader on an online Bible study. Therefore, the Lord God said, Look, I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Now, let's go through our normal procedure of Bible study because we talked about it before with regard to like a bullseye. And we'll, and, and we'll, we'll draw it up like this. And, and we'll say, We'll use this. I've used it myself. And we'll say that this is our text right here. This is Isaiah. 28, 16 right here. And and if we're going to try to figure out the correct interpretation of this text, we start with this exact text. Does everyone remember what I'm talking about? And we'll say, what do we think that the author was trying to communicate to the first or original audience, right? Are y'all following me? And we'll say we're supposed to put our Isaiah hats on, we're supposed to think like a Jew of that day and all those kind of things. have you all heard of that? Yes, this kind yes, of thing, right? Good. And then once you, if that's not enough, then you go to Isaiah, right? You go outside of Isaiah. You still stick within as much of the immediate context as you can. If the author has another book that he's written, then you'll go to other books that the author has written. And then the next band would be the Old Testament. Everyone follow me with that. All right. Here's what I'm doing with that in this verse. 
in this verse. Why am I doing that with this verse? Because it's grounded in the Old in the New Testament. That's right. Because this verse is quoted in the New Testament. And because I'm in the New Covenant, I'm a new. Are you? I'm in the New Covenant. Anyone else in here in the New Covenant? <laughs> right. Because in the New Covenant, my sins are forgiven. He remembers my sin no more, and I've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. Yes. Right? The rest of you can go to the Old Covenant. All right? Sacrifices will be offered tomorrow out by the barn. 613. Right. Take them, all of them. So when I have a scenario where my New Testament clearly tells me what the correct interpretation is, do I have to go through this drill? No. No. Why don't I have to go through this drill? Go. The Holy Spirit provides us with greater explanation. Absolutely. Through the apostles or Christ. Right. So this is something kind of difficult for people. Do we believe all scripture is given by inspiration? Yes. Yes, we do. So are we are we creating a canon within the canon? Is that what we're doing? No. All right. Do you understand that language of a canon within a canon? People will say, they'll say, well, Jesus never said that. Have you ever heard someone say, well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality or Jesus never judged this. Have you heard someone say that before? All right. That's creating a canon within the canon. What what do I mean by canon? Well, we say that the 66 books, all 66 are part of the canon. And therefore, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Genesis 1 1 was given by inspiration of God. Uh, Revelation 22 21 was given by inspiration of God. And everything in between is given by inspiration of God. So we put everything on the same plane. We put it all on the same plane. It's all scripture. Okay? When you create a canon within the canon, you're taking a portion of it, the words of Jesus. And you're elevating it above. Yeah, like the red letter Bibles. Right. And you're saying, well, that's more authoritative than the rest. Why? Because Jesus said it. And so this is how you argue. Well, you see, Jesus didn't condemn this. And so therefore, because Jesus didn't condemn this, then it must not be like Moses condemned it. But Jesus didn't. And if Jesus really meant for it to be condemned, then Jesus would have. Or you'll have the same thing happening with, well, Paul is a chauvinist. Right, Paul's a chauvinist. He doesn't like women. That's why women have to keep silent in the church. That's why. So so in this case, what they're doing is they're taking the Pauline epistles, and they're actually putting it below the line. See how this can work. In either situation, you're creating a canon or uncannering. That's not a word, but you understand what I mean. You're either elevating something or devaluing it to your things. Are we doing the same thing? Are we creating canon within a canon? No. No, we're not. We're not doing that at all. Don't, Don't let anyone convince you that that's what we're doing. If there were no New Testament passages... If there were no New Testament passages that quoted Isaiah 28, 16, then what drill would we go through in order to try to figure it out? Right there. We follow that drill. It's like the parable of the, four, uh, the seeds. 
Like it's like not going to the end of it and then trying to interpret what it means. What is this? Sean, mean? that is a great example. Well, Christ explained it, and it's like a waste of time. Right. <laughs> That's, yeah, that, that, that is a beautiful example. You're like you stop there. And then next week, so you spend your, all your laboring on what does he think this means? And then the next week you pick up your devotions, you're like, I should have kept reading. Right, exactly. Right. Okay. So the reason the idea is NCT, New Covenant Theology, is that we see things through the New Covenant. This is, this is what guides our language. This is we, so when we read Isaiah 53, we're not wondering who's the suffering servant. Yeah. yeah. Well, Paul talks a lot about the mystery that has been revealed that they didn't know. Right. Ephesians. Exactly. Yeah. I said, you said Ephesians. Ephesians 1. Yes. Right. So for us, when you hear me at the pulpit saying, put your new covenant glasses on, this is the idea. I have a place where this is already quoted. I don't have to wonder who this is. Does this mean that he knew who it was? Isaiah. No. No, probably not. Probably not. And 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 using Blue Letter Bible is a great way of validating whether something's there or not. And one thing that I really use a lot, Mr. Sean, is the uh the cross reference in my study Bible. Yeah. But it's it's harder to go from the Old Testament to the New, correct? Yes. So you have to find something in the New and, and then go back to see does it match in the Old. That's right? very true. So. Yep. Because you have to find it in Greek and then match up the mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot easier to grab a New Testament passage and go that way than it is to go the other direction. You can do it. You, Blue Letter Bible lets you go both directions. You can choose to read the Septuagint and look at the Septuagint, right? In Greek. Right, you look at it in Greek. And like, then at that point, what I do, is now, now I've got a Greek word from wherever passage, then I go to my search engine, and instead of searching for the English word, I search for G4310. And then, boom, all the places that that verse, that word is used in the New Testament come up just like that. And so I'm going back and forth between Blue Letter Bible and Logos because I'm so familiar with how to find the Strong's and Blue Letter Bible that I can find it faster. But I love the Logos search engine because it allows me just to blast through. I mean, you, you, Evan, you put in, you know, the Greek word you're looking for and three seconds later every single reference in the New Testament is right there in front of you. And you're just scrolling down line by line looking for, okay, yeah. And you can do two or three Greek words. So if you're looking for a series, you just do comma, 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 and then any verse in which all three are present. And you can just, it's just, a, you know, like I said on Sunday night, the tools that we have are incredible. Ron? When you normally go back to the Old Testament for words, do you normally go for origin to see when the God first say a particular word depends on if I'm doing a Greek word or if I'm doing a Hebrew word are you trying to you talking about the principle of the first time it's used yes right I struggle with that rule because again the scripture doesn't teach that rule right no 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 no. right it's I mean, a method it's a method right yeah. the, the idea is if you're trying to determine how a word is used 
find out the first time it the way it's used the first time. The issue with that is they use words multiple times different ways. Yeah. They don't hesitate to use the same word multiple times. Absolutely. Yeah. We don't have that on Sunday night. We're talking about that company. Yeah. Another thing, too, we talk about the different languages with the Septuagint and the Hebrew and now translating it into English and everything. And you can see the differences, especially with uh, the one you highlighted here in Isaiah 28, 16, you know, not be in haste versus not be shaken. One of the things you have to keep in mind is we all know this, but we tend to forget, I anyway, that languages, a lot of times, like, things don't translate exact ideas and thoughts. Like, my wife is from Romania, and she'll all the time tell me, she's like, oh, I want to express this emotion or like sometimes maybe she's mad at me or she loves me or <laughs> which is more which is more <laughs> <laughs> but anyway she'll say like I have an expression for this but there's no real translation in English I can't even express to you what I'm feeling and it's the same thing with the Bible like do you do you find that in Spanish do you ever yeah, yeah. Right. So then when you're a translator, you know, whether you're those 70 people or the Jews going to Alexandria to translate the Hebrew into Greek, I, you know, they're like, okay, how do we interpret Isaiah 28, 16 into the Greek? Yeah. And they're like, uh, well, these people are speaking Greek now. Their minds are thinking in Greek. You know, how do we accurately put this? And that's why, you know, they're going to be different. Well, that's the thing with the Septuagint is uh, that first group of books, the Pentateuch was translated by that one group. And then you've got for each different book, you've got different people translating in different ways depending on where they're from, you know, what are different cultures, the different Jews and things like that. It's kind of like how the New Testament, if you took the ESV committee and they translated Peter and then the NASB and they translated Second Peter. You know, that's what those guys were. Well, you see the same thing in the King James Bible because how many different ways is Timotheus in the King James Bible? It's Timothy, it's Timotheus, and it's very obvious. Come on, William, you grew up with King James Bible. It's like it's not a different person. Right. Just very obvious that that committee was on the third floor, and the other committee was on the first floor, <laughs> and they never ate lunch together. Right. I mean, they, they never, nobody ever said, hey, how, what are we going to call Timothy? Uh-huh. You know, because it's different. It's all the way through. And, and you lose sight of like, uh, well, is this the same person or not? Uh, obviously, the modern translators don't have those issues. Just think about the advent of how the computers could allow translation committees to be in different rooms and have chat um, boxes open. And every, what are y'all doing with this? Yeah. And then somebody from that committee is answering that question. Can't you? Can everyone in this room envision what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, you're working on Matthew. You guys are working on Mark. And then you got a liaison between the two groups because you know you've got a parallel passage between both things. What are y'all doing here? Well, we're doing this. Okay. You remember uh, last week when in John 4 when um, he says that, you know, for he did not have a, something to draw with, he inserts that? Yeah. Well, those Greek, um, those Jewish people who were doing the Greek Old Testament, they would insert, like, names of current cities for replacements of cities that was written in Hebrew. Yeah, so sure. Maybe, so maybe that's where John gets that from when he's reading the Greek Septuagint. He's like, Interesting. common practice that influences our New Testament. Yeah, well, you'll see the same thing in the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Mark will include details because his audience is a Roman audience, and he's going, you, 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 these Romans are not going to understand this Jewish practice. 
So he'll have an additional detail in Mark that's not present in Matthew um, because they're trying to provide that which they're anticipating in some degree their audience. More from the known to the unknown. Yes. Okay, verse 17, and I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason line. Hail will sweep away the false refuge and water will flood your hiding place. Do you see the parallelism? Somebody describe it in that verse because there's two lines of it. Justice and fairness, one line and measuring line. Yeah, exactly. Right, and then what's the next one? Sweep away and flood waters, refuge and hiding place. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And that that is your Bible. That's Hebrews love to say the same thing twice or even three times. And wh- why do they do that? Memory. Memory. What else? Emphasis. Emphasis. Yes. Emphasis. Right. Exactly. Emphasis. Okay. What did we say about eighteen last week? Your covenant with death. What? What, what did we say that was? Sarcasm. Yeah, the covenant with the Assyrians. Right. And what was it? Sarcasm. Yeah, it was sarcasm. Yeah, sarcasm. Right. It was sarcasm. Okay. They don't think it's a covenant with death. They don't think it's an agreement with Sheol. Okay. Okay. Um, verse number 21. For the Yahweh will rise up as he did in Mount, Mount Perez. He will rise in wrath at the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his unexpected work, and to perform his tasks, his unfamiliar task. This is, uh, this location is described in 2 Samuel 5.20. 2 Samuel 5.20. Someone wants to go there. That same kind of location, that same idea. <clears throat> Read it when we get to it. Yes, please. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, "The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water." Therefore, he called the, the name of the place Baal Perazim. Yep, same idea, same location, just a point of reference. All right, let's look at twenty-two and let's see if we can figure out what that first sentence is talking about. Someone read the first sentence. Let's get a couple of different translations. Um, Chris, will you read in King James, please? Um, 28, 22. Isaiah 28:22. Now, therefore, be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. Yep. Okay. For I have heard from the Lord God. Yep. All right. What else? That first sentence. We're, we're looking at that first sentence. And now, do not carry on as scoffers. Is that all it says? You know, you know, well, it doesn't I'm continue? I'm not paying scripture. No, you're struggling. Yeah. And do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. Or your fetters will be made stronger. Anybody else? What do you got? Come on. Chains will become heavier. Chains will become heavier. Must your bonds be made strong. All right. Bonds be made strong. What is he talking about here? What, what messages is the prophet communicating to Isaiah? I think a parallel is in Luke 12. I think a parallel is in Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 47 and 48. 
Let's grab 47 and 48 as a whole. We'll read all two verses, and then let's see if we can figure out what what this is all about. Someone who hasn't read tonight, let's, let's pick it up. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much more will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. All right. What's the relationship? I'll, I have it on the screen for you. So now do not scoff or your shackles will become stronger. Like your handcuffs will be tighter. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. That's good. Based on what? Whether or not you accept your punishment. Yeah. Your attitude. Your mocking. Go ahead, I, Evan. Just varying degrees of punishment depending on what you find reason to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah, like, listen to what the prophet is saying. Don't make it worse for yourself. Don't make it worse for yourself. Here's the message from the prophet. The greater degree to which you mock the prophet, the greater degree to which you mock the judgment, the greater degree to which you mock God, that's not going to happen. What does he say? Your shackles are going to become tighter. Your the, the chains are going to be heavier. It doesn't matter what metaphor you use, what figurative language. And then what do we get in Luke 12? That is either severe or what? Right. And actually, it, it just clicked in my head. It reminded me of like uh, Hosea 4 7. He says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And he actually goes on to talk, I will, you know, I will also forget his children. And he talks about all the things he's going to do to include shame. Mm. But it was for lack of knowledge, for not listening. Yeah. I think Luke 12 is a really big deal. Because when we're dealing with God judging for all eternity, is that not a difficult concept? God judging for all eternity. Go ahead, Ron. Well, I was going to say one of the things I got out of Luke too. The ones who know better, the ones who that actually know the word that know better, is going to get beaten with a lot of strikes. But the ones who didn't know as much, it's he said with fewer. Right. So, so that's what Evan you described it as what? Very degrees of punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And so why is that a big deal? Why is that a big deal for us? Why? Why should we, we know a lot? He's holding us accountable. Sure, but but we're sanctified, we're, we're justified, we're we're set apart. We have no fear. Who am I talking about? The person I'm talking to is the unbeliever. Who comes to church? What? I said, many will say, Lord, Lord. And they're going to be held to a greater degree of culpability than the single person in the most remote regions of a village in Brazil who's never heard the name of Jesus. The Bible is not in their translation. Just come on. Poor child. Child. Half his life, I don't know about you y'all, but there's nothing I wrestle with more than the eternal punishment. There's nothing I wrestle with more than the eternal nature of punishment. It's hard to comprehend. It absolutely will. I want it to be proportional. Yeah. 
I want it to be reasonable. I want it to be just. I want it to be equitable. I want it to be fair. And and does this Luke passage seem to support that? Pastor Daniel once said, that's God's business, and we can't meddle in it. It just, I guess it becomes more complicated when you think about, I guess, the quote of Isaiah when he says, the fire shall not be quite someone shall not die, or quotes of Revelation. It sounds like the the consignment to the fire like in burning salt is uniform. I know. I, I 100%. And I can't rah, rah, rah on that. I'm, I'm, in my mind, Evan, I'm going, this is a truth and this is a truth. And I want them to be melded together. Like there's degrees of hotness. In um, Luke 12, it's, it, Peter says to Jesus, he says, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And then Jesus goes on talking about it. But then in verse 46, it's interesting because he says the master of that slave, because he's talking about somebody who's put in charge of his sheep. The master of that slave will come on that day when he does not expect him in an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So I, I'm interested. I think it would take a lot more studying to figure out the context of that section, but is that talking about believers as well? I mean, it seems interesting. I don't know. I don't think the totality of Scripture would allow that to be unbelievers. Yeah. but Because then I don't know how you reconcile. There's no, therefore, no condemnation to them there. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. It's just that Peter says that. It's really interesting to me. All right, what is the point? What is the point of the parable? Because the parable is, is 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 suddenly inserted, right? Listen to my voice and hear, pay attention, hear what it say. And then where's the parable start? Yeah. Does the plow man plow every day to plant seed? Does he continuously break up and cultivate the soil? When he's leveled its surface, does he not scatter back black? Cumin and so cumin, he plants wheats in rows, barley in plots, smelt as their border. His, his God teaches him order, he instructs him. Okay. What is the point of the parable? What? Versus, listen and hear my voice, pay attention and hear what I have to say. So there's our couplet. Does the plowman plow every day plant? Does he continually break up and cultivate soil? And what's the answer to those two questions in 24? No. No. And I think that Yahweh here is transitioning to some incredibly figurative language. And he's comparing the judgment on Israel to what? Yep. And in particular, breaking up the dirt. And what is the good news for Israel? Forever. Yep. Exactly. It's kind of like the passage of Ecclesiastes we talked about there's a time for everything. That's kind of what this. Right. Yeah. He says, he says, is the judgment against Israel going to last forever? The answer is no. Is God going to transition to something more? The answer is yes. When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter black cumin, sow cumin? He plants wheat in rows, barley in plots, was smelt as their border. He lays out what would have been common agrarian practice in those days. 
they would have immediately connected with all the, the language that was there. How he does that. His God teaches him order, he instructs him. How about 26? What do you think about 26? No one? The note I wrote down is, does God instruct me? Does God instruct me? Does, do I follow God's plan? Does God instruct me? Am I open to God instructing me? Because he teaches him order, he instructs him. 27. Certainly black cumin is not threshed with a threshing board, and a cartwheel is not rolled over the cumin, but black cumin is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. What is the message of 27? How am I supposed to, what, what, am I, what, am I, what am I supposed to take away from that very physical, tangible, agrarian language? Certainly black cumin is not threshed with a threshing board and a cartwheel is not rolled over the cumin, but black cumin is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. God uses different devices. Yeah, beautiful. I think you're right on the right track. I think that's exactly each one has a specific purpose. Yeah. And it's the appropriate device. For the appropriate situation. It seems like, um, as I was reading that, I was trying to figure it out. I don't know if I have that in my mind right, but it's like instead of taking it all and smashing it all, there's a there's a rod being used. I think of like sifting or like when like you're smacking it so that uh, part of it, the bad part falls away, but the good part separates. At the end, I don't know, that's what I was kind of I think of that. But, yeah. Well, when you look at 28, uh, I'm sorry, someone's talked. No, I just said like burning, like burning a tree. Sure, when you go to 28, now he changes it. Now what happens? Red grain is what? Ground. It's ground. But, what's it say? But, not forever. Exactly. Again, What's he giving them? What this? Hope. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. See, we have to learn to read the language. We have to see what's being communicated. This. This is not instructions about farming. <laughs> right? Though the wheel of the farmer's cart rumbles, his horses do not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of Armies. He gives wondrous advice he gives great wisdom do we believe it do we really believe it do we apply yeah well sure absolutely Ron I agree you have to believe it to be true before you'll ever apply it mm -hmm. You know, the very reason why you take Tylenol is because you believe it is efficacious. Yeah. You wouldn't take it if you didn't believe it was efficacious. That's why you go and take it. <laughs> is that not true? There's a there's a the note in the net version for 23 through 29. This is verse 23 through 29 emphasize that God possesses great wisdom 
has established a natural order. Evidence of this can be seen in the way farmers utilize divinely imparted wisdom to grow and harvest crops. God's dealings with his people will exhibit this same kind of wisdom and order. Judgment will be accomplished according to a divinely ordered timetable, and while severe enough, will not be excessive. Judgment must come just as planting inevitably follows plowing. God will, as it were, thresh his people, but he will not crush them to the point where they will no longer be of use to him. Amen. That's, I mean, that's a great summation of what we've been talking about for the last five minutes. Yeah. And we, if we're going to be a student of the Bible, have to begin to see the poetic language. We've got to do it. There's no way we're going to get out of it what we need to if we don't look for it like that. I like your question. I'm challenged by the last point that or last question you put up. I really believe it because the actions betray what we really believe. Our actions betray what we really believe in our heart. And it's easy to for me to read this. Yeah, I believe this. I believe this. But then, you know, if I don't back it up with my actions, you know, it's right there. God is, is wonderful counsel, excellent wisdom. You know, so why do I waste you know so many hours on my phone on Facebook that I'm scrolling through and I could be like getting wisdom from God to make me a better man? You know. So. Well, I'm just going to step on your toes for just a moment. Half the church on Sunday morning throughout the week doesn't give a penny to the Lord. Half, and it's because they don't believe. They don't believe that God will bless. They don't take God at His word. God has promised very clearly from His word. That he'll take care of you. That he can bless you. That he blesses givers. That he blesses in proportion to how you give. I mean, and we're not talking about Old Testament. We're talking about Luke 6, 38. Given it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. Will your heavenly Father bless? You get to decide what measuring cup you want God to use. Give him a teaspoon and he'll use a teaspoon. Give him a cup and he'll use a cup. Give him a bucket and he'll use a bucket. But the truth is... Christians don't believe that to be actually true. They will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And I don't mean that they're not saved. I mean they're genuinely true. But to push through that and really start believing the promises of the Word of God, it's too much. It's too much. All the studies done indicate that average Christians, 2.5% of their gross income, 2.5, 2.6, 2.5, 2. 2.7, bounces right around there is what the what, what the giving is. Is that from everybody? Yeah. So it's obviously like the people that are, but then the people that aren't, it averages down to 2.5. No, people that aren't is not, there's no zeros put in there. Oh, no. Oh, it's people who give. That's only of the people that give. That's only of the people that give. It's the givers. Right? It's not it's not taking an arbitrary number of there's two million Christians or whatever, and so the, that, that's not what it's doing. It's two point five percent of people who give. And then of the people that say they're believers, what or, or even you know, a typical membership, isn't it like just twenty percent that are givers? Or is it in this church, twenty percent of the church gives eighty percent of the money. That same law of churches. Yes. Yeah, this, yeah. And we're good givers. No, we are a good giving church. This is a good giving church. So don't stop. 
<laughs> this is a good given church, but it should be twice as much as what it is. It literally should be twice as much as what it is. Because most people go the entire year with giving nothing. And that's just an example of you read a verse like that on your morning devotions, you know, your whatever, little little tidbit of whatever. And yeah, yeah. And we just move on. Because we're not fully convinced that God's able to take care of us. I was there. I got married in 1989 to Pam. We're working on our budget together, and she writes down tithe. What? Yeah, I went through that. <laughs> what? I went through that. Yeah, this is the money we give the church. No, we don't. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. I had I, I come to understand tithing. We can't afford to do that. That's exactly right. Yeah, it took me a while. This was, you know, E4 pay mm-hmm. in 1989. <laughs> right. You know, I had a person in the church here that I thought a lot of, and um, a lot of people have come out to help this person. Yeah. And I said, well, don't you tithe? She said, oh, I've, I've, I've never tithed, ever. Yep. But, but this person expects everybody to help them, and uh, towards me, I'm a Christian, and I need some help, and I'm in a bad way, but has never tithed it ever since. Not even a cent. And that shocked me. I mean, I know I know lots of Christian people who go to church don't tithe, but it shocks me that even those those people who you think are faithful and they may be faithful, but they've never followed followed. And my dad always said, You give ten percent of your gross, not what you take home. Right. You know, I mean that's what And again, let's remember we're new covenant Christians. So are we under the tithing laws of the Old Testament? No. no. We're not. Nope. We are not. We are not playing this where we sing out of both sides of our mouth. Right. New covenant, new covenant, unless you're talking about tithing. We're not doing that. Right. That's why the verse I quoted was Luke 6, given it shall be given unto you. Just start giving. Just start. Wherever you want to start, just start doing something. The Lord will honor $5 in a white envelope given with a spirit of worship more than a begrudging thousand dollars given from somebody who's a miser and is irritated that he has to tithe. Well, he was voted with the widow when she gave the one cent. She gave gave more than all that rich person. That's right. Yeah, Ron. I'm just curious. I mean, is, is, is it an economic thing or a heart thing more so than anything? It's what thing? Is it a, do you do you believe it's an um, economic thing or heart matter? I think it's both. I think it's absolutely both. I can't. I don't think you can separate them. I think you're trying to split a hair that can't be split, or you're trying to establish a distinction without a difference. Because your your practice follows your heart. Okay, I can tell my wife all day long, "I love you, I love you," but if I'm consistently rude to her. At some point, she's going to decide, I don't believe that you and I have the same agreement on the word love. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. So, you know, my, my heart is, man, my heart is just, I'm a millionaire, Ron, and I'm just, man, I'm giving this dollar to the Lord with all my heart. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, how can you minister to that? I mean. How can who minister to it? I mean, 
the Bible clearly says about giving, right? And you you do you know you you in church every Sunday, so I'm thinking, how could you even fix that problem? You know, how can I fix it? No, well, not just you, but just how, how could you minister to someone? And they sit in church every day, and they understand certain fundamental things, and just never do it. Well, Christ talked to Peter and said, "The person who believes he was forgiven little loves little." Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, for me, Ron, I don't get access to that data, and that's very intentional because I know how I, I would be judgmental. I'd be like that cheapskate Ron Mason man who drives that expensive vehicle and doesn't give a penny to the church, shows at Bible study, asking all kinds of cool questions like he's a big shot. And, right, so I know what a sinner I would be. I'm not, and I don't think I'm by myself. I think a lot of you, I mean, if you're honest, Julia, when you found out that information, it impacted what you thought of that person, didn't it? Yeah, well, I don't want to know you. I think that something that's important to focus on is like, yeah, that person needs to grow in that area. But um, for me, obviously, you said something that was really important. You said just start tithing, whether it's five dollars or you know whatever. And me and Kiana started doing that, and it got us in a pattern where we were doing small amounts, and it was something that was feasible. But like those people who aren't tithing, we don't need to just shun them and say you're you're an unbeliever and that's not what you're doing. But um, like your heart's not. You don't believe. It's I didn't like, say. It. I know. I know. But I'm just. I'm just saying. I think for everybody here. That's why we don't broadcast it. That's why we don't put it in the bulletin. It'd be good if we started listening. You know, right here, the number you gave last several. You know, put the top one up there and the bottom one down there. And, you know. You know. Well, that's why we don't do that. My point is just that we should show them love and patience and grace and try to educate them the appropriate way with grace and truth so that they start growing. Yeah, but again, remember how I got on this. It was at the end of the chapter and it was a clear admonishment. Like, listen to me. I give good advice. I'm a wise God. Follow what I say. It works. The farmers do it. They follow what I say and they've been reaping. You start following what I'm saying. And my contention was a lot of Christians tacitly say they believe the word of God until it comes time to actually apply it to their lives. Like you say, you know, you got to treat somebody, uh, you know, patients or whatever, you know, however you worded that. He has no clue who those people are. How how can he treat one person any different than the other? I think he doesn't know. No, I'm just using scientists and all of us just yeah. yeah. check our hearts. Because, because we're having this conversation. Yeah. I'll say real quick that, but like, none of us know. Some, some, er, some people struggle with tithing and they're good in other areas. Some people don't struggle with tithing. I'll find myself in the middle of uh, a crisis at work and I'm like punching my way through it. I have to solve it. And I'll get myself all stressed up. And, I, and then really it's the same thing. If, do I believe the Lord is in control or not? Right, sure. Is this his job? Did he give this to me? Right. Am I in this position because he appointed me in this position? Or not? Sure. And that's the end of it. Great. Yeah. Great I'm example. I'm not disagreeing with anything. I just thought in the midst of that conversation, it was important to go back and focus on yeah. like the overall bigger picture. Well, in past years, past reviews, we have a natural sinful bent. Mm-hmm. Whether we want to or not, and that will cloud our judgment. Whether we know it's right or not, it's a naturally sinful bent. Absolutely it is. There's a church in town here that when you join, they ask you what your annual salary is. That's and they tell you how much you ought to give if you're going to belong to that church. Yeah. And Could you give me the pastor's number? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's off the record. You can turn the you can turn the podcast off, right? Delete that part. I know for us, when you know, because I was struggling at it in the in the very beginning. So the way we work through it is, you know, I got promoted to sergeant, and so whatever that difference was, it went there. And then I got that first raise, and whatever that difference was. And then finally, we got to where we needed to be. And once we got to where we needed to be, then we could re- reap the benefit of getting promoted to staff sergeant and having a little bit more disposable income. But the idea, from my perspective, was since we're not giving, we're not getting giving where we need to be. We're not going to increase our own personal standard of living. You know, a nicer vehicle, a better place to live, more disposable income until we got to that spot. And then once we got to that spot. Then it became like the challenges. All right, what are we going to give this year? Yeah. You know, and we left ten percent behind from the perspective of, okay, this is what we gave last year. What can we give this year? And it became a heart issue of you know, and I just tell you, thirty-five years of marriage, where we were then when we had a picnic table for a dining room table, and where we are today, I'll just tell you, God's been faithful. <laughs> God has been exceptionally faithful, and His advice works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, we just need to take it. All right, if you ever wanted children, go get them.